Mark chapter 1, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, a disciple is a devoted follower, and the closer we follow Christ, the more we become like him. This is actually the eighth part in a series. And for those who haven't heard all the lessons before, let me just encourage you to go to our word shop and, and, and you can procure uh, the previous uh, recorded messages. You can also go online to access that and listen to those, and not just once, but over and over again. And I know that it will help you be a, a better Christian and more Christ-like. So as we follow him, our actions and our attitude becomes more and more conformed to his. Our life more closely resembles his, and that is the aim and the goal of every disciple to become like his master. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus in this verse stated his purpose, the reason why he was born into this world. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, Jesus knew why he was here. Maybe you're not sure why you're here. Maybe, well, it's Wednesday night. That's why I'm here. No, but there's a, there's a bigger reason. Why are you in this world? Why are you here? Well, I think you're here for a bigger purpose than simply, you know, making a living. That's fine, but, I mean, there's got to be more to life than that. I think you're here for a bigger purpose than just having babies. That's great. We all, wonderful, great thing. But maybe there's something else also, right? All the mothers are not happy. Well, I mean, godly babies, you know. <laughs> Amen. Mm. A true disciple of Christ has to have a passion for lost souls. I said a true disciple of Christ because Jesus does. A true disciple of Christ has to have a passion for the lost, and he will make every effort to see that his generation is saved. He who follows Christ will lead others to Christ. Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. If we're not catching fish for the kingdom, are we really following him? Amen. Praise the Lord. Now, so Jesus compared evangelism to fishing, and for good reason. They both share some of the same qualities or principles. So to be a good soul winner, we have to be an effective angler, right? So to catch fish, and forgive me for stating the obvious when I say this, but to catch fish, we must first of all want to do so right? In other words, we need the motivation. We have to be more than agreeable. We have to be moved. Amen? So many, many years ago, some of you were not even born then, many years ago, I worked with a fellow, and he loved fishing. I mean, he talked about it all the time. He had a boat, 
And we, we lived near the Atlantic Ocean, you see. So he would go out into the deep, you know, and, and, and he would go fishing. And he talked about it all the time. And he made it sound so wonderful, you know, just amazing experience. You know, like you, the fresh air, the sunshine, the blue, blue waters, and, and reeling in these monsters and all, you know, just, just, just amazing. So one day he said, hey, this Saturday we're going out on my boat. You know, me and my friends, would you like to join us? And it sounded so appealing. I said, sure. And he said, great. We're going to meet at the dock at four tomorrow morning. <laughs> four? You mean like 4 a.m.? He said, yeah, we have to, we have to uh, travel quite a distance, you know, in the water to get to the right spot. I said, 4 a.m.? I don't wake up at 4 a.m. for no fish. Hey, nobody I wake up at 4 a.m. for. <laughs> it's got, I don't care if it's Moby Dick. I'm not going to wake up at 4 a.m. <laughs> so I wanted to fish, but not that badly. Not, th not that badly. Likewise, you know, there are some Christians, uh, you know, who are agreeable, but they're not really motivated. If we're going to win the lost, we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone. Now, some people are fanatical about fishing. I, I, I think that was. Maybe if we're not catching men for the Lord, we need to be a little bit more fanatical, at least in the estimation of some people. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So many Christians are in favor of leading others to Christ as long as it's convenient and doesn't require, you know, any effort on their part. But fishermen must be determined... And likewise, soul winners must sacrifice their time and energy to share the gospel. So why do so many believers lack the drive to witness for the Lord? And I really think that most of us are somewhere in this category. Why do we lack the drive, the motivation? I think one reason is this. We don't really believe in hell. Many Christians, they believe the Bible partially. There are certain passages that does not appeal to them, that they don't like, and so they just dismiss and disregard those things, but uh, it's still there whether you like it or not. If somehow we can convince ourselves that there is no eternal retribution or punishment for sin, then all motivation for sharing the good news of the forgiveness of sins will vanish. In other words, if we somehow think, maybe in the back of our minds, that all roads lead to heaven, then why bother preaching? It won't matter. Are you listening to me? But the truth is this, there is a hell. And those who don't receive Christ in this life will find themselves there when they leave this world. Psalm 9 and verse 17 says this, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. The Message Bible says this, the wicked bought a one-way ticket to hell. That's pretty plain. <laughs> Amen. Some people, even in the church world at large, 
they sort of scoff at the idea of hell. They insist that this is only a figurative term and not a literal place. But Jesus not only spoke of heaven, he also talked about hell. In Luke chapter 10, verse 15, he said, And you, Capernaum, which is a town in Galilee, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. The word Hades, Greek word, means the unseen lower regions of the earth, the abode of the dead. It's not simply referring to death, physical death, or the grave, since even the best Christians die. So if hell is not real, then from this verse we must conclude that heaven is also not real. No, they're both real. And Jesus knew what he was talking about. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus described hell as outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice there is a place in that place. It's not a state of mind or just some feeling. And he used the same exact expression, the same words several times. For example, in Matthew 22, verse 13, and Matthew 25 and verse 30, the same thing. Notice he, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, in that place, there is frivolity and, and fun, and it's just really a great place to hang out, and everybody's having a wonderful time. The easy-to-read Bible says, where people will cry and grind their teeth with pain. The Passion Translation says, bitter weeping and unbearable anguish. Hmm. Then again, in Luke chapter 16, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man and a poor beggar named Lazarus. Verse 22 and 23, he said, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, and that also means hell, in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, some people have assumed, you can read the whole passage, I don't have time. Some people have assumed that this must be a parable, not an actual historical event. But my friends, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A parable is where you take something familiar to explain the unfamiliar. So in Jesus's parables, he talked about vineyards and sheep and goats and wells, things that the people who heard him could easily relate to. They could understand those things, right? But two men having a conversation in the afterlife is not something they, nor even us, can relate to. Besides that, in none of Jesus' parables did he ever give anybody a name. Yet here he says there was a man named Lazarus. No, this is not a parable. This actually happened. And something else I need to just say so you don't get confused. Um, you have to understand that before Christ's resurrection, 
before the resurrection of Christ, Jews who were in good standing according to the law, when they died, they did not go to heaven. Before the resurrection of Christ, Jews who were in good standing according to the old covenant, they did not go to heaven when they died. In Genesis 25 verse 9, it tells us that when Abraham died, he was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. The same is true concerning, the same words are used concerning Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Aaron. Nowhere does it say, and they went to heaven. So under the old covenant, those who were right according to the law, uh, they went to, evidently we can tell, they went to a special compartment separated from hell. See, notice in the story Jesus told, Lazarus was next to Abraham. Well, Abraham wasn't in hell, but he was not in heaven. He was in the belly of the earth in a separate compartment. And when Christ was raised from the dead, Jesus emptied that place. That is to say, the place in Ab where Abraham was. And that no longer exists today. In Ephesians 4, 8, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Well, who are the captives that Jesus led into heaven when he ascended into heaven? Who are those people? Well, isn't the people on the earth? He didn't lead a bunch of people with him, you know, from the earth into heaven. I believe he's talking about those Old Testament saints, you see. And you must be clear that there is no purgatory. That is wrong. That's false doctrine. There is no place that's sort of an in-between heaven and hell. Like, you know, you're a Christian, but you weren't a very good Christian, or you were a sinner, but you were a good sinner, and so there's this place. It's not heaven, it's not hell, it's Demopor. No, there's no place like that. There's no place like that in the universe, right? It's heaven or hell. And there is no such thing as soul sleep that the spirit of a person is asleep in the grave. No, no, when a, person, when a person dies, his spirit instantly leaves his body. And he's not wandering around the jungle. He doesn't turn into a tiger or anything. That's all nonsense. That, that's not Bible. Amen. Amen. So the rich man's body was buried, but his spirit, which is the real man, by the way, the spirit was in agony in the torments of hell. So even though it's his spirit, he feels pain. And he asked Abraham to send Lazarus to fetch him some water. He says in Luke 16, 24, cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But his request could not be granted. Again, in the book of Revelation, John had a vision of future events. And he saw, he saw those who had died and gone to Hades, gone to hell, and they were resurrected in the end times. Because you need to know this, there will be a resurrection not only of the just, but also of the unjust. In fact, John says, blessed are those who participate in the first resurrection, meaning when the saints are resurrected, because the second resurrection will be judgment. The second resurrection is for those in hell. And they stand before the throne of God. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 and 15, John says, Then death 
and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. What he means is those people who had died and were in Hades, in hell, that's a Greek word for hell, they were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that means for those who are not saved, who've never received the blood of Jesus, they go to hell, but that's not even the end of the story. At the last day, they will stand before the throne of God. The books will be opened. All of their sins will be revealed. Their names are not in the Lamb's book of life, so there's no forgiveness for all those sins. And then they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And that is even worse than hell. That is torment without end. Someone has, has said, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? How could a righteous judge not? Since all have broken his commandments. But God has provided a way of escape through faith in Christ. Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Does everybody go to heaven? If you do not believe in him, if you do not believe him as the son of God and as the Christ and the savior, you will die in your sins. That means you will die spiritually dead, unforgiven. Nothing in the Bible, my friends, I'm telling you the truth now, even though you may not uh, care to hear it, there's nothing in the Bible that indicates that after the sinner dies, he has another opportunity to hear the gospel and believe. I am sure that everybody in hell today believes the gospel. I'm sure that they, there are no atheists in hell. I said there are no atheists or agnostics in hell. They all believe that there's a God, that there's a devil, that they know there's a hell now, but it's too late. If a man is ever to be saved, it will be now, in this lifetime. Are you listening to me? We don't like to think about these things, but they're true. And why am I saying this? The reality of hell will make us all evangelists. I said the reality of hell will make us all evangelists. I want to show you a brief video. We're going to cut out the stage lights now. And we just have a short little eight-minute clip that we're going to show you. This is one man's testimony. And I think it's worth considering. And it might, be, it might be confirmation of what we have been talking about. Go ahead and turn these lights off, please. Praise the Lord. I cannot obviously independently confirm his experience, but I take him at his word and ask you to just consider it. And I appreciate the fact he said, you just checked the Bible and he's right about that. Praise the Lord. Amen. When we realize the reality of hell that awaits the lost, then we will not be nonchalant, casual about sharing the gospel with those who do not know the Lord. We won't say, well, you know, you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe, and, you know, it's up to you. No, I think that you would be passionate. You would plead with people to believe. It takes drive and determination. I know some folks to say, oh, Brother John, you know, I grew up hearing all about the fires of hell and everything like that, and I just got overloaded on that. 
But there's a whole generation that has never heard anything like that before, and I think they've gone the other direction. All they hear is that, you know, God is good, and He loves you, and he, he won't, nothing like that will ever happen to you. Well, no, no, no. Without Christ, you have no hope, and people need to know that. Amen? Let me just take a few more minutes, and then we'll, we're going to pray together tonight. So it takes drive and determination to catch fish. Follow me, he said, and I'll make you fishers of men. Another reason why Christians are not seriously motivated to share the Lord with others is fear. Fear of rejection. Fear of ridicule. And we often make the mistake, I think, of prejudging an individual. Even before he has had an opportunity to hear the gospel, we assume that he won't believe it. Well, if we share the good news with the person, there's a possibility he will not receive it. But if we never tell him, then he has no chance to hear it and believe it. We've already decided it for him. Amen. Besides that, sometimes we're wrong. In fact, many times we're wrong. You probably can think of experiences from your own life. I remember years ago, uh, I was with a, t a small group of people, and I walked up to a man in a parking lot in America, and he was obviously, he had been drinking, and I think they were they were partying, doing mischief, and, um, and, uh, and I just walked right up to him, and I began to share with him about the Lord, you know, and he looked a little bit intimidating, you know, and he kind of looked at me askance, you know, but to my surprise, he said this, he said, I have to go, I can't stay here right now, but he said, I just want to say this to you, that um, I'm not doing right, and I need help, and so I just want you to remember me when you pray, and he, and, and, and he thanked me. And I've seen other people who, even though they didn't receive the gospel, they thanked me because at least I had enough concern for their soul to share with them. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Jesus was not ashamed to die for us in the most humiliating way, crucifixion, while his enemies watched and stood by and mocked him. So we should not be ashamed of telling others about it. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, we read this. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Verse 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So we know this, that the Holy Spirit does not instill fear in us, phobias and timidity and shyness. That's not the character of God, and that doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. Rather, He imparts to us power and love and grants to us a sound mind with good judgment. Now, we often quote these verses, and we apply them broadly in our life, you know, like uh, God's not giving us a spirit of fear, so therefore go ahead and take that job interview or go ahead and jump in the swimming pool with us and swim. And, uh, you know, okay, I guess in a general sense that might be an application, but I also know that's not exactly what Paul had in mind. Notice the next verse, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So the word therefore means for this reason. 
Consequently, because of this, because God has not given us timidity and fear, we should not be ashamed to share the testimony of the Lord with others. Amen. You know, the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and I know that you all know this verse. It's, we, we talk about it all the time. Acts 1, 8, but you will receive what? Power. Somebody say power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this verse is divided into two parts. The first part tells us what God explains to us, what God wants to do in our lives. The second part explains why. See, a lot of times we know the what, but we don't know the why. There's always a reason why God does something. He doesn't do anything just for kicks. The reason we are baptized with the Holy Spirit is not just so we can feel better about ourselves and have more lively services. The reason is so we would be empowered. We would have the Holy Ghost ability to be a faithful and accurate representation of Christ that we ourselves would be exhibit A in the courtroom of life. We would be the proof that Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Some have said this, well, Brother John, I've led many people to the Lord and I've not been baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't, you know, speak in all those tongues and that type of thing. Well, okay, fine. But think about how many more people you could have led to the Lord if you had this Holy Ghost power. And if you didn't need it, Jesus would not offer it. And if his, oh, I could preach another sermon, I don't have time. If, if these men who accompanied him for three and a half years, if they needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what makes you think that you can get by without it? See, one reason why the church has failed so miserably in this department is they're trying to do things with natural human strength and their own intelligence. But that's never going to be enough because this is not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. You have to have the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Jesus ministered. Oh, I'm getting off my notes, but maybe you need to hear this. Jesus didn't minister just with human intellect and human reasoning. He didn't just give psychological counseling and a, and a little herbs and some vitamins to the sick by the anointing of the Holy Ghost he cast out demons and healed the sick so if he ministered that way what makes us think that somehow we can just surpass it with our own ability there's too much this is natural I, I, I understand the natural things have their place but but we need more of the supernatural the world's not convinced of the gospel because we you know have a good diet and, and, and we don't watch movies. And the world is convinced because we have the power of the Holy Ghost in our lives. Amen? And in some cases, it's not just embarrassment that hinders people. It's persecution. That's Timothy's situation. It's not that he's embarrassed. It's because he's living in a hostile, toxic environment. That's why back in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 8, he said, share in the suffering for the gospel. Ooh, that's one of those little parts of the Bible that you, don't, you skip over, but it's there. Right? There is a persecution. There's an opposition that we face for the gospel that we must endure as Christians. But notice he said, share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That means the Lord will sustain you. He will strengthen you. You know, we like to sing, there is another in the fire. 
Well, guess what? If you want to be with that other, you got to get in the fire. <laughs> Amen, isn't that right? It's fun to sing about that way over there, away from the fire, but if you want to be with that fourth man, you got to get in the fire. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Notice what Peter said, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Come on, some of you are saying, Lord, bless me. All right, he's sending the insulters your way. <laughs> no, not that kind of blessing. <laughs> if you are insulted, no, not just insulted, but insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. I am because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Actually, if people do ridicule you or make light of you or sneer at you for faith in the Lord, for sharing the gospel, you should rejoice. You should be the happiest person in town. You shouldn't hang your head dejectedly with tears dripping off the tip of your nose. You should lift up both hands and thank God because you know what? Hallelujah. The power and the glory of God's on you. Hallelujah. Amen. And if we share in his sufferings, we'll also share in his power. Amen. The enemy does not want us to share the gospel because Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says it is the power of God. What is? The power of God is the gospel for salvation. And we know this, the devil uses fear to control us. You don't think so? COVID. <laughs> COVID. Just mention the name. Demons don't bow, but a lot of Christians do. <laughs> don't get me started. I'll get on another sermon here. You won't go home till midnight. <laughs> The devil uses fear to control people. God never does that. He uses fear to control people, to silence us. It's interesting, the enemy never tries to prevent us from spreading gossip. But when it comes to the gospel, he intimidates. Hmm? The enemy doesn't mind if you talk about your fears. He will encourage you to talk about your fears. But he has fear that you will talk about Christ. So somebody's going to be afraid today. And I'm tired of it being me. <laughs> it's his turn now. Can I get an amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Hallelujah. There have been times, I want to be honest with you, there have been times, and, and there are people who are listening to this message who are much better soul winners than me. And maybe they should be up here speaking, but, you know, this is my duty. This is my heart. There have been times when I was prompted by the Lord to share with someone about the Lord, and I talked myself out of it. I, I, I began to reason, and I talked myself out of it, and the moment passed. I thought, well, maybe I'll see that person tomorrow or something. The moment passed, and I never saw that person again, and to this day, I have regret. All I can do is pray for them. To this day, I have regret. Men are not saved by Christ's death alone. Someone has to tell them. And if we don't, no one will. I'm not trying to heap condemnation on anybody. I'm not trying to make anybody feel like a schmuck or feel bad. But I do hope to motivate you. I do hope to stir you up today because this may be a, a, a part that's missing in your Christian life. 
I mean, how many more sermons are you going to hear about, you know, victory and prosperity and anointing and healing? and power? How many more sermons are you going to hear like that and ignore this part? Sharing the gospel with others. Hallelujah. Amen. I was, uh, I preached in one church recently. I think it was um, this year. And in America. And afterward, uh, my wife and I and the pastors went out to eat in one restaurant. And this is a, these, this, these pastors, husband and wife, they're a wonderful, loving couple. I really, really appreciate them. But uh, we were just eating. And this restaurant was near to a very large Christian university. And so the stewardess came. A uh, stewardess. It wasn't an airplane. A restaurant. The waitress came. I'm thinking about five things at the same time. It's, it's, you don't know that, but I am. And so this waitress came to take our order. And uh, so then she went back in the kitchen. And while she was uh, away from the table, a young man came up to us and struck up a conversation. The restaurant was going to close in a few minutes, and it was basically empty. And this young man was a student from that large Christian university. And he said to me, are you a pastor or something like that? And I said, well, yes, I am. So he began to, I want to ask you this question. And I, I don't remember the question, but he, he began, we began to chit-chat. And he was a fine believer. And so then he says to all of us at the, you know, they, at the table, they said, well, you know, me and Jeppy, uh, they're, they're not from here. They, they actually live, you know, in Northeast India, but, uh, you know, but we're here like that. And he, oh, okay, great, great. And then he said, he, he kind of pointed to the kitchen about the waitress. He said, you know, please pray for her. She's not a believer. And, um, and, and, and when she came to the table, it was obvious that, that these, these pastors, they knew her because they, they spoke very, uh, 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 um, you know, what, what's, what's the word, you know, uh, familiar with her, you know, they, you know, they seem to know each other very well, you know, and, and, and they, this pastor and his wife, they eat in that restaurant all the time. So this, this waiter, again, this young man, he, he said, please pray for her, that other waitress, because she doesn't know the Lord and, and, and she needs to hear, hear about it, you know. And then he said this, have y'all shared the gospel with her? Silence. Silence, embarrassing silence, because the answer was no, right? And that, that's a little embarrassing when the waiter is a better evangelist than the pastor. Uh, but then again, let's tell a story about myself, not to, not to criticize someone else. So this is the first time someone's hearing this story. When I was in college, I just want to be, make a confession. When I was in college, I went on one date. And I also need a ride home after this service. <laughs> I need a ride to your home, I think, our hotel. Uh, <laughs> I went on one date, you know, only one. And, and this student, she was in the same department as me. And we, we were somewhat friendly. And, and then I think she went to another department. I didn't see her. And so later on, several years later, I called her on the phone. Uh, and I didn't know it was her. I called her. for It was a business thing. I was working and her number was there. And then I realized it was her. And, and, and she is now saved. She's born again. And she's like on fire for God. You know, she's praise the Lord and just telling me what God's done in her life. And she's so excited like that and so forth and so on. And then she says to me, are you a Christian? I said, yes. And, oh, wonderful, wonderful. Praise the Lord. You know, it's been several years since school, right? And then she said to me, so were you a Christian back then when we were students? And I said, yes. And she said, but you never shared with me about Christ. And that's when you go, I untie my bow tie. Uh. 
you think it'll rain today? <laughs> that's embarrassing. But that's nothing compared to how people will feel on the last day. So let us be silent no longer. Hallelujah. Let us be silent no longer. One more scripture verse. Isaiah 55, 11. God said, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall prosper or succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will not fail. You're never a failure when you share the word of God. When you share the, you're never a failure. See, you, you can't determine the, the effectiveness of God's word by the immediate response of the people hearing it. They may sneer, they may turn their backs and walk away. That doesn't mean you failed. You have sown the seed, and that seed cannot fail. If the heart will receive it, it will germinate, and it will produce the fruit of life. You are not a failure. Don't let the enemy deceive you. You are never a failure when you share the gospel. You can be more effective, perhaps, maybe wiser in some areas, but you're not a failure. And the Bible says that in the book of Acts, that when they preached the gospel, the people who heard it were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Well, you know, if people are cut to the heart, naturally, they're going to respond kind of funny. If you had a literal sword and you cut them, they would say, ouch, whoo, what's going on? Ah, you know, they, naturally, but they, something spiritually is happening to them. And the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Amen. So here's the thing. Here's a Naga example. If you had an AK-47... And don't, don't misinterpret what I'm about to say. If you had an AK-47, you, you had a machine gun in your hand, would you walk around being real timid and shy and bashful and don't even look people in the eye? I think some of you would act like you own Nagar John. <laughs> you looking at me? <laughs> right? You, you know, just some, you know, the rickshaw walla, he better mind his business. Right? You know? The sub-G walla? Huh? No, I said uh, five rupees. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? You, 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 you would have this confidence, maybe. Right? Well, you have a spiritual weapon, the sword of the Spirit. It's more powerful than any gun or bomb or anything like that. And you have angels and you have the Holy Ghost. I'm not telling you to be cocky and arrogant. You know that. But I'm telling you, you don't need to be so timid that your knees are always having fellowship as soon as you leave this building. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God's not giving you a spirit of timidity. So if you're yielding to shyness, that's not the Holy Ghost. Mm. But notice this, that Paul told Timothy, stir up the gift of God. Fan the flame. See, when, when the fire dies down in our soul, that's when fears start gaining the ascendancy in our life. Right? Hallelujah. So if, we, if we're going to be a good fisher of men, we've got to keep the fire burning. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Would you stand with me to your feet?